This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We recently uh, started a new broadcast called Global Nashville with Carl Dean. A Global Nashville podcast present leaders from Nashville and other specialists who are connected with global issues or an aspect of the city and region that contributes to the international flavor. The conversations with former Mayor Carl Dean touch on the roles, experiences, and accomplishments in the city and region and their insights and perspectives on all of the things that make Nashville a global city. Today, uh, former Mayor Dean will be talking with Renata Soto, the executive director of Conexión Americas. Uh, Renata Soto is a a Costa Rican-born social entrepreneur based in Nashville, Tennessee. She is co-founder and executive director of Conexión Americas, a nonprofit organization dedicated to building a welcoming community and creating opportunities where Latino families can belong, contribute, and succeed in Tennessee since 2002. Every year, Conexión Americas supports more than 8,000 Latino and other immigrant families in achieving their own version of the American dream annually, purchasing homes, starting businesses, learning English, supporting their children's school success and path to college, and becoming integral parts of Tennessee's social, cultural, and economic vitality. Renata is the visionary behind Casa Azafran, the nonprofit collaborative that has become an iconic landmark in Nashville's urban landscape and a source of local pride and national attention. Even President Obama took notice and hosted a nationally televised town hall meeting on immigration policy in 2014 there. For this, Renata was named Nashvillian of the Year by the Nashville scene in 2013. More recently, her vision for equitable communities where all residents have access to beautiful shared civic spaces to play, gather, and participate extended further in August 2018 with the opening of Azafran Park. Nationally, Renata has served almost 10 years on the board of directors of Unidos U.S., formerly the National Council of La Raza, the largest Latino advocacy and civil rights organization in the nation. She served as chair from 2015 to 2018. And now, Global Nashville with Carl Dean and his conversation with Renata Soto. Hello, I'm Carl Dean, and welcome to Global Nashville, and thanks for listening. Uh, with me today is Renata Soto, co-founder and executive director of Conexion Americas, and she will be shortly leaving that position, which she has done uh, such outstanding work in. Uh, first, welcome, Renata. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. So we'll talk about Conexion in a minute, but um, I just wanted to talk first about yourself. Um, why do you start at the beginning? Um, where were you born? And just tell us your your background so i am uh, costa rican from san jose the capital of that little country in central america and i grew up in a home of educators and lots of women raised by mother and grandmother and growing up as the youngest of three sisters Uh, when i was growing up i wanted to be a reporter and i was a student at the university of costa rica actually uh, about to start my senior year when i got a opportunity to come to Kenyon College as my year abroad. And that's what brought me to the U.S. 
temporarily as a student. I stayed a couple of years, but then um, I met who became my husband. And so I stayed here. My entire family is back in Costa Rica. And my husband's job brought us to Nashville in 1996. And it was a place where we were excited about the work opportunity for him, but not a place where we saw ourselves staying for a long time. At that time, um, young professionals like ours were looking at Atlanta and other places in the Southeast. But it took very little for Nashville to steal our hearts. And now we have been here since 96 and we love this place. We call it home. Our two children were born here and we are excited to be part of Nashville and excited to be part of many efforts to make it achieve the city that it wants to become. And did you end up graduating from Kenyon or did you go, did you go back to Costa Rica and finish up there? Or? Yeah, I, uh, I was only at Kenyon one year. So as you know, some universities, since we're here at Belmont University, you have to have a certain amount of uh, credits that you earn at that uh, school. And so it was just a year abroad. I transferred all those credits back to the University of Costa Rica. And so that's my official alma mater. But I had a cold and interesting winter at Kenyon College in Ohio, coming from Costa Rica especially. And so you go back to Costa Rica, you finish up at, uh, at the university there. Uh, you'd met the person who's going to be your husband, and you decided you were coming back to the, to the U.S.? Yes. And, you know, at that point, I always saw myself uh, being an investigator reporter in Costa Rica. I always look outwardly and wanted to see the world, too, and wanted to go abroad to study. But I certainly had a very strong sense as a young Costa Rican wanting to do all I could do to leave my country better than I found it. Uh, and so I really had very uh, strong attachments to why I wanted to be a reporter and where I wanted to be a reporter. But, you know, love happens. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I ended up here in the U.S. and had to rethink what to become. I shut down the opportunity to become a reporter because I felt that I couldn't write in English. Uh, I didn't have the licenses that I had in my native language. So I shut down completely the pursuing the dream of becoming a reporter and sort of a job at a nonprofit organization in, Nash in, in Atlanta then the Latin American Association working with Latino immigrants is what directed me in this path one in the nonprofit world here in the U.S., but also later uh, working with immigrants and refugees, then in Atlanta and then here in Nashville. When I've heard you talk about your mother before and your sisters, and you grew up in a, in a strong family. Um, when you think back to Costa Rica, what? And I assume you go back there on a regular basis. Every year. Yeah. What 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 are your memories? What do you love about Costa Rica? Well, you know, I um. I first have to say that that probably, you know, like most of us were certainly shaped by all the experiences that accumulate over time. And I grew up with my mom going to college, starting college when I was five. So I do remember having the sense of my mother pursuing her dreams of uh, intellectual curiosity. My grandmother was raising us uh, while she was at school every day and... I always have been very aware of the trajectory of how one thing changes one generation and the ones to come. My grandmother had a fourth grade education and, you know, she grew up in a house with third floors and worked as a domestic worker and as a cook. 
her daughter, my mother, was the first in her family to graduate high school and go to college. And not only that, but she became a college professor and a published poet. And so I'm always very aware of what's possible, one, when a community rally around someone. In this case, I know that it took a lot of work and determination from my grandmother and my mom, but I know that it was not just up to them, right? Like they had supports around them that made that possible. And certainly, um, by the time my, my sisters and I were growing up, going to college was a given, and it was never a barrier or a challenge that I felt like I had to overcome like my mom did. And so I guess part of my experiences in Costa Rica certainly have shaped my path in life about, you know, how can I be that system of support to other people like other people were to my mom and my, my grandmother. Also growing up in the 80s in Costa Rica, when Central America is in civil wars and upheaval, there were a lot of people coming from Nicaragua and El Salvador to Costa Rica. And my mom was very involved in the solidarity movement of Nicaraguans in particular. And so I remember in my house, uh, and again, I was probably seven, eight, six, uh, having families that stayed with us for a little period of time and sometimes extended period of time. And our house was small. We already were sharing a room, so we were sharing whatever else we had. And so I think that in a way also, uh, not that I, I actually reflected about that later, but how interesting is that in my work, actually, I ended up creating an organization working, uh, welcoming immigrants and refugees to this community that I now call home in the way that my mom also was trying to be a welcoming home for people in Nicaragua, particularly. Did you grow up speaking English? Uh, not much. Like in, in, in most Latin American countries, uh, like most places in the world, children start learning another language from first grade. And that is the case in Costa Rica uh, for most schools, not necessarily as strong in the public education system. And I went to both private and public schools. But certainly by the time you get to high school, you actually study French and English. And in some schools, you actually have to then by the time you're a junior, you have to choose one or the other. And I love French, but I knew that English was more practical. But I have to say that it was uh, not probably enough. And I, I continued to study English on the side when I was in high school. I took I went to a school on Saturdays. And uh, I, I'm glad I did because by the time I applied to the scholarship at Kenyon, it was all an English language process. And so I had to demonstrate some command of the language. I have to say that it was the hardest year of my life because I had never taken a college level class in English and Kenyon College was the international population was of students was small enough that they didn't offer English as a second language. So I had to enroll directly in, in a class just like anybody else. And so I was very humbling experience not being able to read, finish my books and texts and anyway, having to ask for a lot of help. Well, so you're here in Nashville in 96 and you um, eventually help start and co-found an organization, Conexion. Tell us what Conexion does and why you founded it. Mm -hmm. So I was at United Way for five and a half years. And in my last role there as a grant maker, I was aware and in touch and had a good perspective of all the resources that we had in Nashville, the nonprofits that were stepping up to starting English classes and other services that were particularly addressing particular needs of the immigrant families that we were seeing move here. Um, I also co-hosted actually a radio show, so I love this microphone. I love radio. I co-hosted a radio show for about four years as a 
volunteer project uh, every night at, uh, on Tuesdays. It was called El Café de las Siete, coffee at 7, 7 p.m. And basically it was a show like this. I would have a guest um, and we would basically have nonprofits that would come and talk about the resources that they had and people that wanted to reach out to the Latino community, the health department and other entities in our city too. And I also realized then the resources that we had, but also the lack of connectivity of some of those, but also that there was not a, uh, an organization that understood the complex political, social, cultural environment in which a family that comes from Mexico and then now finds themselves trying to make a life in a community with a new language and new customs and new traditions. And so that coupled with um, my interest to do something about it and coupled with the fact that I met two people that uh, shared in that challenge and vision to start something is what led us, uh, three of us, to start Conexión Americas in 2002. We were a response to the demographic change that was happening in our city. Many Mexican and other Central Americans family coming here because of the economic boom of our city and there were jobs available and we needed that labor. But as they came for that temporary job to build the arena or something else, they found Nashville a place that offer uh, great quality of life, uh, decent cost of living compared especially for people who were coming from California and also great weather. And so families started to come as units and claiming their new place in Nashville as their home. And I felt that Conexión Americas needed to be there not only to be a support to those families as they were trying to buy a house, start a business, help their children succeed in school, but also to be an advocacy organization telling the stories and giving a platform for people to share their stories about why did they leave their countries in the first place, what what pushed them to leave and what pushed pulled them to come here. Because at that point, we were already also seeing anti-immigrant legislation at the uh, legislative plaza, uh, trying to make sure that, you know, immigrants didn't feel that Nashville and Tennessee was a welcoming place. Yeah. Well, let me just uh, remind our listeners at this point that uh, I'm talking to Renata Soto, who has led Conexion Americas, and I'm Carl Dean with the Global Nashville Podcast, and that's part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Um, so when you started out, I mean, you have a beautiful building now, and you're a, a, one of the most established organizations, I think, in, in the city, highly respected and doing great work. How small were you at the beginning? It was three of us, no money, and we were at a donated space in Midtown where Jose Gonzalez, my other co-partner and actually faculty member here at Belmont University, had space, and that's, you know, as the entrepreneur story for many people, you start with whatever somebody offers you something either cheap or free. And, you know, we started with a ambitious mission of creating a welcoming community and opportunities for Latinos to belong, contribute and succeed. And it took a lot of conversations and the support of many people to not only share in that vision, but support it to become what it is today. Today, we are an organization of a little bit more than 50 employees a little bit more than $5 million in annual budget and almost 10 in assets thanks to the Casa Safran Community Center that people like you and other leaders in our community supported. And I am most proud that we are also an organization that has cemented its roots in Nashville and has grown the scope of services and voice that we are here, but that also we are a statewide organization now serving also 
migrant families and their children to make sure that they're going to school, even if they're moving around from one crop to another, that those children and those parents know of their rights in the education system here in the U.S. and that it's important for them to go to school and have the resources of tutoring and, and many other, so that those children also have the opportunity to succeed in school. Of course, that work in uh, places in East Tennessee is very different than serving an urban family here. And so um, I'm proud of our, of our team that has to go to farms and look for people and find the families and find the farmers to make sure that they know of the resources that we bring available. And that we also are a statewide organization in terms of bringing other organizations to have a coordinated voice for things that we believe are important. In this case, in particular, in education policy, Conexión Americas is the lead agency of a coalition of educators that has promoted for three years common agendas to make sure that children, especially children of color, are not left behind and that they have access to a world-class education. I should have asked this at the beginning, but <clears throat> what does Asafran mean? What, what is, what's the significance of that name? Yeah, so let me say about Casa Asafran, when we were about five, we realized that the community was continued to grow and Conexión alone could not do all that families needed and the opportunities that they were pursuing. And based on my experience at United Way leading a project uh, forming family resource centers, which is this model of co-locating in one place public and private agencies, that sort of morphed into, or I guess it was the inspiration part for Casa Safran, to try to create a nonprofit collaborative that would f locate several organizations under one roof, serving immigrants and refugees with very distinct missions and autonomous organizations, but brought together by the vision of making sure that families in our community had all those resources and opportunities to speak for their own families and be engaged politically, socially, culturally. And so uh, the name Casa Safran, Casa of course home, uh, being the home of all those partners. And Asafran is the word in Spanish for saffron, the spice that makes, let's see, the paella yellow. And it's one of the most, uh, it's a very common spice among many civilizations, African, Asian, Latin American, and it is very expensive. It is actually one of the most expensive spices precisely because it takes a lot of manual work to just come up with one little pound of the spice. And to me, that reflects, speaks of the hard work that happens under the roof of our building, um, but also the collective work that happens to make possible all that we're trying to do for our city. And, you know, for us, it's also... An interesting story, once that we already had chosen the name, I learned that um, Asafran actually came from, it was brought to the U.S. and to the Americas by European immigrants, and that the flower is family of the iris flower, which is the official flower of the state of Tennessee, which I thought it was a great a poetic. Re remarkable name. Right? <laughs> um, and, and so and so now we're, uh, we're at Connecting on Americas, and you're doing some statewide work, doing a lot of work here in Nashville. And when you began in the uh, this project in 2002, 2001, um, do you have a sense of what the um, non-native-born population of Nashville was at that point? Yeah, so part of what inspired founding Conexión Americas is precisely that the census of 2000 
is the one that tells for the first time since the census has been taken in this country, a very different story of the growth of the Latino community. So even though still told us that by sheer absolute numbers, the Latino population is highly concentrated in places like California and Texas and all the places that we think of strong Latino communities, the 2000 census told us that for the first time it was places like places in Tennessee and in Georgia where the growth of the Latino community had taken the fastest path. And so we went from a few hundred to a few thousand. And then in 2000, the census tells us that there's 26,000 Latinos in Davidson County and that in the state, the growth had been more than 254%. Again, we came from a few, but the sheer pace of that growth, which was, was significant. And we... Exactly. Nashvillians were seeing that when you drove by a construction site, when you were seeing businesses on Nolensville Pike um, pop up ethnic uh, markets or restaurants and now through food give us a sense of a growing cosmopolitan and global city. So we'll take a, a brief break and then we'll come back and talk some more about the great work that Connexion does and what it means for Nashville and uh, what... Uh, the city that we both love, how it will continue to thrive and have more of an international character. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. We're back with Renata Soto, and uh, we're talking about Global Nashville. And Renata, I want to talk about Connexion Americas some more. Um, you mentioned that when the organization began 2002, there were new census figures that indicated that Nashville was becoming uh, the home to more and more um, uh, people with a Latin American background. And that only intensified um, in the years following. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Yes. And actually what happened is the, the year 2010 then tells us that that growth had continued. Actually, Tennessee was the place where the Latino community um, was growing the fastest, I think the third in the country, um, not just in places like Nashville, but primarily in places like Nashville and Memphis and our urban centers. And, and certainly at Conexion Americas, we felt that number of families coming here, many coming from other states where the economy and the job opportunities were not as great, some coming directly from their home countries. And coupled with that is a sense of a community that is becoming more global, more cosmopolitan, but also segments in our community that are rejecting that change and are not necessarily welcoming this more diversifying community. And Right. You know, so people f- notice that the city is changing. They notice that there are, um, you know, there are people f- who, are, who are Latinos living in the community much more, and there's a reaction. I mean, some of it positive, some of it negative. Um, but during your time um, as the executive director, you faced 
challenges because of those reactions. And I think one of the most uh, important reaction was the effort to um, pass the legislation through a referendum that would make Nashville an English-only city. Um, what was your reaction to that? Well, you know, we um, as an organization and as a group of families felt that certainly that was a rejection of the building of the building blocks that we were putting together to make Nashville. Uh, a beacon of hope uh, in a country and in a region where immigrants, Latino immigrants in particular, were new families uh, arriving in those communities. And I was very proud of my city because it was not just organizations like Conexión Americas and the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition and others that serve the immigrant community, but many other Nashvilleans, the chambers, uh, educators, faith leaders, our mayor, who understood that um, we didn't want to take, want to take our city back, that if anything, we needed to claim uh, a city that was trying to face the challenges that come with welcoming people who come from other countries, that, who speak other languages and who need certain supports, but that who also understood that it was really up for Nashville to benefit from that creativity, from that energy, from that entrepreneurial spirit that those new immigrants were bringing here. And so English only required a uh, organized effort of many people from all across of all walks of life to send a very strong message that that's not the city that we wanted to be and that that was not the message that we wanted to send not only to people that we were trying to recruit to come from other places businesses but to the families who were already here who were part of the engine fueling the growth of our city right and that was in 09 and as you say, the city, we can be proud of the city rejected that. And you, you recall many places, national organizations, and everyone thought that there was no way that we could defeat that effort, that that was uh, not only bringing the force of other national movements trying to use places like Nashville as test case for passing legislation like this, um, that it was an uphill battle, but we still gave the fight. And, um, you know, I know that certainly many people analyze all the elements that made that possible, but one that is absolutely key to that was your own leadership and your voice understanding that you needed to make this a priority. Everywhere you went, you talk about why this was not what Nashville needed, and um, you were an important voice along with many others that convinced Nashvilleans that we needed to go and get out to vote that day. Um, it was the year when we were electing also President Obama and um, a lot of things in our country and our community were coming together, coalescing about who is that we want to be. Well, when that happened in '09, um, you know, I thank you for the kind words. But what I remember most was that the city, you know, sort of stood up and said, "This is not who we are," and that we are a city about the future. And and my sense was, and I wonder if you agree with this, I, is I think Casa Asafran, Connecting on Americas, came out of that much stronger, that people, number one, your public profile increased dramatically, and that there was a sense that people in Nashville felt this is, this is a cause we should be supportive of. I agree, and I, and, and I think it's because precisely organizations like Conexión stood up and with a loud voice joining the chorus of others and leading and being part of the founding steering committee of the coalition, the Nashville for All of Us coalition that led the campaign against the English-only referendum. 
And I think that actually, if you would ask me, remember this is 2009, uh, Casa Azafran didn't open until 2012. I do agree that if we were taking a different path, maybe Casa Safran would have not been possible because the conversation in our community would have been different. Maybe because resources would have been applied differently. Maybe because other fights were being fought along the way. And but to I open think that Casa Asafran was a substantial capital campaign, a substantial request for support from the public, broadly speaking, both philanthropic, business, private individuals. Um, and getting that open was a huge success. And one of the things I want to ask you about, because I've always, this has always intrigued me, and I always thought it's one of the best things about Casa Asafran, is there's a real high element, which is what immigrants bring to a community, is entrepreneurship. I mean, people don't talk about it enough, but immigrants are very entrepreneurial. That You encourage that. I mean, there's, you have a food kitchen. Um, you, have, uh, you work with people to help them get business started. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think that by definition, immigrants are entrepreneurial. And, 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 and for many uh, generations before and for the immigrants of today, creating a new business is not only a way to pursue your American dream, but it is also an important way in which how our economies move, right? We know that small businesses really propel the job creation in places like Nashville, not just for your relatives and friends, but for people around you. We recognize that starting a business is not only one of the ways in which people who come here want to see their version of their American dream be fulfilled, but that it takes more than just, you know, savviness for what is the product or service that people need. It also takes knowing how the system works, right? Like, how do I register my business? How do I pursue a loan? How do I grow from a one person or a something on the side to something that becomes the most important income for my family. And so since our beginning in 2002, we have been about supporting entrepreneurs find ways to succeed in, in their business ideas through basic education. When we opened Casa Safran with the design, we then went one step further. We had seen many people in the food industry uh, and all the challenges that they face. And so we knew of this model of shared commercial kitchens that we have seen in other parts of the country and copied the best of them all and created the Mesa Comal commercial kitchen, which today is a hub for about 30 entrepreneurs, food trucks, wholesale businesses and catering companies who have a facility with commercial state of the art uh, equipment, but also with and, and of course, with all the licenses that you need from the health department and the state department of agriculture, but also a community that supports and mentors each other. Um, we know that being an entrepreneur is, is not an easy path. And our kitchen, I can tell you that just like the kitchen in any home is also the heart of Casa Zafran. I love coming in there. It's palpable, the energy and the creativity and the, and the energy that just uh, you can be around. And the food's very good. And the food is amazing. <laughs> And so uh, after English Only was defeated and then you begin the project of building the building itself and things, I think, are going well and, and you expand to do a park that's a, an ongoing project but is a, a great thing for the community, um, we still see resistance um, and, and concerns, particularly at the state level, being voiced about immigration. And 
um, the issue of the dreamers becomes an important issue, which, you know, the dreamers for our listeners, as most will know, are those who are undocumented, who came to this country with their parents, very young children. They didn't come here on their own, but they went to school, to church, and they lived here. And then they're not eligible for um, scholarships and other things to go to college. And then they're also living in fear of perhaps being asked to leave the country. Um, and so, Casa Asafran, you reach the point where the President of the United States uh, comes to see you. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, that was probably one of my highlights in my life, it will be, right? So, President Obama already had approved the first DACA deferral for children who were basically giving a reprieve from being deported, but also, as important, were given a temporary work permit and social security number, which opened up a whole new uh, path of opportunity for these young people who were now in college, already graduating from college, had professional degrees. And when uh, President Obama passed that as an executive action because it was impossible to uh, come to consensus in Congress, there were more than 800,000 students and young people across the country that benefited from that. And he was trying to now have a second wave and recognizing that there were many people who had been not, uh, who had been left behind by that and opening the requirements, but also thinking about the parents, what happens with the parents of those children who are also part of our community. So we were very honored that uh, President Obama, he's basically trying to convince the American people why this policy is important and why he's doing it as an executive action as opposed to taking it to Congress because they're not willing to do it. Uh, he chooses Nashville as the place where he wants to have a town hall to continue that conversation and to announce this new expanded program that, that he hopes will bring into light and out of the shadows all of these young people that have been part of their communities and their parents. We hosted President Obama in December of 2014 at a time when people in Nashville and in other parts of the country were feeling encouraged that while Congress was not willing to take those steps, um, there was progress if our president was able to use his uh, prosecutorial powers and do it. We were really honored to be the face of Nashville to the rest of our country. When he visited Casa Safran. he had a, a small town hall of about 70 people. You remember you were there? And to connect it back to the kitchen, I'm most proud that right on the front row of that town hall was Carla Ruiz, one of the cooks and food entrepreneurs from our commercial kitchen and an amazing creative entrepreneur who asked the first question. And it was a really a, a great opportunity for people like her who were concerned about her own future and her children's future, her son being a DACA recipient. And she, an undocumented person, trying to still one day be recognized as the American that she has become. It was a really great honor to welcome a sitting president. Um, and that forever will be an important highlight. But I think that I'm proud also that the President Obama chose Casa Safran because I think that he and his staff, I guess, did a good job understanding of that collaborative nature of what was happening here. Um, I think that he understood that it was important to highlight that in places like Nashville, where we had defeated English only a few years ago, still there were efforts to move the city forward and that Casa Safran was a symbol of that. 
I know that uh, for our partners, it was it was a highlight, and I know that it was a recognition of the collective work that Nashville had done at that point. And then the, the president, I think, was also making a point. I think that it would have been very um, predictable for him to go and do that town hall in Arizona or in California, in a border uh, state or in a community where Latinos are already more than half of the population. But I think his choice of coming to Nashville, it was precisely also to remind our country that we had been changing in the last 20 years and that places like Nashville were not only also places where Latino families were making it home, but that maybe places like Nashville could teach us the, the way for the rest of the country because we were grasping, grappling with, with those new challenges of becoming a more diverse city. And trying to do it in a, in a positive, inclusive way. Um, well, since then, I mean, there's obviously been a change in the presidency and some of the issues that um, we've talked about today and that you're most concerned about, whether it's education, whether it's the, the DREAMers, DACA um, students, or immigration reform in general, um, have, not, have not happened. Um, what, just looking at Nashville now, in Tennessee, what what are the biggest challenges that um, immigrants face? Uh, what, what, what's, what's, what's number one sort of on your list of things that you think need to happen? You know, I think that, that certainly for many people in the Latino community, this uncertainty about our place in this community, are we welcome? Will we ever be able to get on a line where we can prove that we have been playing by the rules, paying taxes, being good neighbors to each other, being good parents, helping our children succeed in school. Will we ever be recognized uh, as true Nashvilleans and Tennesseans and be given a work permit that, that allow us to breathe and see our long-term future here? But I would say that while that condition is important and one that preoccupies a lot of uh, families in our community, I think that most immigrant families are concerned about the same things that other Nashvilleans and Tennesseans are challenged about. I think that our communities are also often in jobs where the wage growth is not keeping pace with the cost of living in our city. I think that parents are, you know, working hard to make and meet and having two jobs to make sure that each parent, right, is, is providing and maximizing all their hours to bring food and opportunity to their children, which is the reason why they came to this country in the first place. So I, I think that for many immigrant families, um, we share in the concerns of many other Americans about the growing disparities in our communities and you know, what access to quality schools do we have in our neighborhoods? Uh, the, the fact that, you know, transportation in Nashville, you have to have a car to move around, and that limits the kinds of jobs that young people sometimes can have access to, the kinds of internships of after-school uh, opportunities that some kids might have available. Maybe for some lower-income communities, that is not an option because, not just because, maybe, not, not because the opportunity is not there, it's because we don't have resources to get to that place from where we live. And so I feel that for Nashville and for Tennessee, the greatest challenge is to make sure that we absolutely, at, at, as we continue to grow and as we continue to see um, job opportunities, it's 
how do we make sure that all kinds of families in all kinds of neighborhoods have um, opportunities to, to sharing that prosperity so that we can also have more choices about the neighborhoods where we live because that's where the schools that we want to send our kids to or because our jobs are actually giving us opportunities to grow and provide even a better quality of life for our kids. I think, you know, when we ask parents what is one of the most important things that brought you here or one of the most important things that, that you want to achieve, education for the children is at the center of their answer. Yes, maybe the typical ideas of buying a house, right, as the American dream are part of the list. But most parents will tell you is, I want my children to have the educational opportunities that I didn't have. That, right, like I might have been able just to go to fourth, sixth grade. Maybe I even finished high school. But I couldn't do more. And that's one of the reasons why we came to this country, because I knew that in my community back home, my daughter, my son, that's all they would also have to aspire to. And so I feel that making sure that our schools, um, we know that education in my own life, as I shared earlier, I know that it was my mom's capacity to graduate from college and all that it meant and changing the trajectory of not only her family, but generations to come. It is how do we make sure that not only our school is a world-class environment, but that we understand all the other things that come into play into ensuring that kids have the capacity to succeed in school. And that is, you know, are they healthy? Are they fed? Are they living in neighborhoods where they feel safe? Are they able to uh, get to places that um, allow them to take advantage of all the opportunities that our city has to offer? What's your, you know, the immigration issues um, in terms of the federal government and immigration reform or just what what's happening um, seem so difficult. W- uh, are you optimistic about the future or what, what's your... You know, I think I'm always going to... I have to be optimistic. I have to be optimistic about the future. I think that the last three years have been very hard. We, we've been disappointed about immigration reform many times uh, in 2007 and then again in 2017. But in 2007, if you recall, we had um, a great opportunity where almost immigration reform was passed in Congress. And I'm, I'm very proud that both of our senators, both Republicans, voted for that bill. And in fact, uh, Senator Corker was an important leader in his own party trying to bring other people to the table uh, of consensus and the Senate passed it and we were very encouraged that finally we were going to be able to have a system that was updated uh, to both the economic needs of our country but also recognizing the social needs and pressures of the countries that send us people here. Um, That was a very hard year that um, when on the House side, the Speaker did not allow the vote even to be considered. And that was the end of that conversation. Then here we are in 2019, and it seemed that that was probably our lost opportunity and nothing has happened since then. If anything, things have gotten harder. But I I have to believe that Americans will uphold the values that build this country and that we will get back in touch with the roots of this immigrant nation that has built who we are and that 
you know, it is our past, it is our present, but it is also our future. And and I think that common sense will prevail. It it seems hard right now to believe that that's the case. But I think that certainly the wave of leaders that have come at all levels of um, participation, um, local, state, national, um, especially young people, especially the courage of a lot of dreamers and how they actually have led the way in sharing their stories and um, making sure that people see the humanity in them and they see parents see their own children in their stories. I feel that their voices will carry us to a time when we will recognize them as the Americans that they are. Yeah, and Nashville, um, of course, this is global Nashville, and Nashville has become so much more of a diverse city, not only with the people background to live here, but with business, um, education, a whole whole slew of things. Um, that's would seem to me that that's a trend that's going to continue. Yeah, I think that, you know, we are poised to continue to be a place where people want to claim their own roots when we continue to offer opportunities for families to feel that this is a place where they can belong, right? When the growth means also that we need that labor and families are attracted here in the first place for the jobs that are available. I know that I see it also in our work with migrant ag agricultural workers, right? Like we know that the Latino community is the one that is putting most of the vegetables and things that we eat every day, not, you know, certainly the tomatoes and the tobacco that our families are harvesting and working here in Tennessee. So that is only going to be the truth for our economies and for who we are as, as communities that continue to grow. I think that the challenge will be how deliberate are we as a city and as a state to continue to make sure that as people coming to our city, they have the resources and opportunities and the know-how to contribute, to find their path to that dream, but also for us as a city to benefit from all that they have to offer. So what is, um, what is next for you after this month is over and... So yeah, I have two weeks at Conexión Americas and I'm feeling so overwhelmed about all the things that I need to finish <laughs> after 17 years. Um, you know, I'm going to take a little break this summer and travel with my family around the world a little, but um, I'm excited that I've been given the opportunity to participate as a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, um, in part because of how I understand that we are connected globally. It is a program that seeks to encourage transatlantic dialogue between Europeans and Americans. And about 25 Americans are fellows in this program and go to Europe to learn from civil society, elected officials, other nonprofit organizations and business about all dimensions of life uh, and policies and politics and economics in Europe just like about 25 Europeans come to the U.S. to do the same. Uh, I will be in Europe for uh, the month of October and a little bit of November visiting uh, five different countries and in this learning journey. And I'm excited to really uh, compare many of the, of the ways in which um, the growth of immigrant and refugee communities and the arrival in many European countries are also testing their policies and their, um, how do they find what, what does it mean to be German or what does it mean to be 
Turkish or what does it mean to be Sweden as they also grasp with uh, demographic changes in their communities. And I think that there's a lot we can exchange and learn from each other. And, you know, I'm excited to be a learner for a little while before um, I decide on a, on a next path. But I certainly want to make sure, you know, whatever I do, I know that it will be very cliche, it sounds, I know, but I, I still want to be involved in making my community and my country and my world uh, better. And so I hope to find a way to do that. Well, that obviously means that you need to come back on this podcast when you get back and give us all the answers because you're going <laughs> to have learned, right? Well, you know, I think that is very interesting, right? If you think about the rise of nativism and all this uh, sort of veer to uh, extreme right movements uh, in the U.S. and in Europe, um, I think that it is sometimes easy to see that this is happening here. But I think that is very important for us, and I appreciate the context of this conversation and the World Affairs Council in terms of reminding us of how not only interconnected we are, but some of the things that we're experiencing here are movements that are happening also in other places. And there's a root cause, and I think that then the solutions are also shared and are uh, global. And so I'm excited to see what I learned and what I can bring back home. Good. Well, I can't think of a better person to have that opportunity. Well, this has been Global Nashville. This is Carl Dean, and we have had the pleasure of speaking with Renata Soto. And let me just say thank you on behalf of uh, myself, and I'm sure scores and hundreds of other people for the great work you've done in Nashville. You have made a tremendous contribution not only to Nashville but to our state, Um, and now you're going international, so that's good. Um, Thank you. Please share your thoughts with us about the Global Nashville Co- podcast by email to info at Tennessee W-A-C, which is tnwac.org. And also consider becoming a member and supporter of the Tennessee World Affairs Council by visiting tnwac.org. Thank you. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.